It's only January 5th, and already we're seeing massive news and events in the cycle. We, of course, have the Fed minutes, job claims today, SBF apparently going to go play League of Legends on his parents' couch for the next 10 months, and a whole lot more going on. As usual, Thursdays, we do the roundtable. I've got three incredible guests today, David Young from Coinbase, jean Biev Rock, Dector, and David Nage from Arca. Can't wait to discuss everything that's going on and give you our outlook for what's likely to happen in the crypto space in 2023. You guys don't want to miss this. Let's go. Let's go. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel and hit that like button. Certainly not seeing 2023 come in like a lamb. We're getting major, major events in the news cycle already here as we start the year and start to look forward on what is likely to happen in 2023. I think that probably the guests will agree that macro is still going to largely drive the crypto market, and there's a lot going on on that front. I'm going to go ahead and bring on all three of our amazing guests right now. Dave, jean and, well, we've got two, two Davids. I don't know if I should do one of you as Dave or one of you as David. And honestly, to be transparent, I think for all of our panels in history, you three have the most butcherable names collectively <laughs> of anyone I've ever got. Nig, Nagy, Nage, Najee, Duong, Duong, Young, and of course, Jen... John, we could we can butcher your first and last name. Pretty good job, though. GRD, you can call me GRD for short if that helps. G- GRD works as well, but I think you probably usually get Genevieve. I think we've talked about this. Before. <laughs> I try hard, and then people correct me when I say your name correctly. It's it's very hard. So listen, we're obviously here to talk about what's going to happen likely in 2023 in the crypto market, but can't do that with I think first giving an honest appraisal of where we're at right now entering the year. I mean, 2022 was arguably the worst year in the history of the crypto space. Uh, There's people here who were here in 2014 in Mt. Gox who say that potentially that was worse or different, but it was, it was pretty bad. So I guess, is there anything specific that we should start being excited about or looking forward to in 2023 that could be a catalyst to sort of get us out of this funk? Uh, I'm going to go to you, uh, Arca Dave call you Archidave at first, because obviously I think you are very heavily boots on the ground at the moment. Yeah. Um, I always like to set perspective first and foremost. If you think about what we've seen over the last few years, all of a sudden within the last, you know, two to three years, you had crypto winter in 2018, respectively speaking, where uh, it followed, you know, a steady Bitcoin price accretion, you know, to about 21,000 at the end of 2017. Then it fell through all the way down to about 3,000. Everyone didn't know what was happening. Um, and everyone proclaimed, you know, crypto dead. And you know, obviously, as we saw, you saw some of the largest companies in the world be able to raise their early rounds there, like OpenSea and, you know, Fireblocks and others out there. And all of a sudden, you start a resurgence of interest in the space. I think what's feeling different about this time is that for the last two years after crypto winter, we've had a fairly significant build out. Um, we've had you know OpenSea obviously do massive amounts of volumes in terms of NFTs. We've seen you know lots of companies in the space, you know dozens of companies in the space reach multi-billion-dollar valuations on the private side. Um, it started to look and feel like more of a mature space 
um, you know, coming out of that kind of adolescent into that kind of preteen tween type of, you know, phase right now. And so I think what a lot of people are feeling right now is that because of some of the actions that have happened over the last few months that have, you know, shown some of the ugliness of centralized finance, um, that, you know, we've seen this kind of doubling down of kind of this negative effect where we were rising, we were feeling strong, everyone was loving the space. You had big tier one banks coming into the space. Uh, you had, you know, tier one banks also writing research reports on the space. And then all of a sudden you had these you know, a few actions that have happened here. I think what my takeaway from this, especially from the venture perspective, is what we saw over the last few months is that we saw the failure predominantly of centralized finance of CFI. Um, you know, some of the larger companies out there that have gone through Chapter 11, that have filed for bankruptcy, that have been you know, trying to you know, find a way through have been majoritively speaking on the CFI side of things. Um, but what we saw from that, and kind of one of the things that we're thinking about for 2023, is that from that you know, kind of rubble, if you will, from that negativity, you saw that you know, players like Celsius pay their DeFi loans first and foremost uh, back in July. Uh, you saw 3AC pay their DeFi loans right away. And this is why DeFi, we think, has potentially a future is because it is based on smart contracts. It's based on code. It's, progr it's programmatic. And so if you can actually kind of extrapolate away some of the failures that we've seen over the last few months, most of them, as I said again, have been focused on DeFi. We think DeFi has a way forward. Um, but as we also see, DeFi has its own misgivings. DeFi is very weak on security. And so what we've seen over the course of the last few months is that we've seen a lot of projects lately that have come from more of the legacy uh, cybersecurity space that are using AI and ML to start to really try to harden DeFi to make it much more secure so the everyday user can go on there confidently. And if there is a exploit or a hack, that their total capital put into those DeFi platforms is not eviscerated. So we think that a way forward is that DeFi actually needs to have hardened security, which we're starting to see. And we think that this is one of a few different themes that we think will be prevalent in 2023 and 2024. Obviously, happy to talk more about you know, the different ones we think too, but we think that's one of the first takeaways. Javier, what do you think? So I come from more of the mainstream world. And so, Scott, I love coming on your show because I'm always like, oh my God, like, are people paying attention to what's going on on like the, you know, the mainstream scene? Cause I understand DeFi and I understand the power of that longer term, but we've taken a giant step back here with mistrust. And even for people such as myself, who've been in the space, not as long as everyone here, but you know, I'm just learning tomorrow how to self custody my own crypto. Right. And I I've been, I've been investing through centralized exchanges. I've invested through ETFs. I thought that that was all, you know, safe. Um, and now we're finding out that not only is it not safe, but there's probably some other huge uh, things to fall here. I I've been paying attention to the Binance situation, and I'm very, very, very concerned that there's something going on there. I also found out this morning that Binance's market share of trading volume, so Binance obviously being the biggest trading exchange out there, uh, their trading volume rose to 92% at the end of 2022, at the end of last year. They're now like the dominant trading platform for spot Bitcoin. And if there's something amiss there, you know, they're under investigation by the Dep Department of Justice. What does that do for the industry over the next year? So 
I think that long term, these crypto winters are obviously a really great opportunity to accumulate. But when I looked back at like the 2019 period, the other crypto winter that we went through recently, you know, what was the catalyst to get people excited to get back in was simply the fact that there was cheap money. And we went through this massive injection of capital in the in the American system and cheap money was was around and people were were willing to um, invest and take bets on risky assets. I don't see that happening anytime soon. So I'm just wondering, like, what is going to be that catalyst uh, for crypto? Yeah, I actually agree with what you're saying as far as the easy money, but we did at least have a spark, which was at that time, Michael Saylor and MicroStrategy. That's really, in my, in my mind, what sort of sparked the interest in that last bull run and sent people running. Even if you have the free money, you still actually have to point people in that direction as the thing to buy. But Right, but uh, what's David, going on now with MicroStrategy? Right, right. What's going on with Genesis? What's going with, it, on with Gemini? Like, there's... So many unanswered questions, right? It now. was it was before Sailor. It was Paul Tudor Jones writing his thesis about you know, why Bitcoin matters in a diversified portfolio. That got institutions all kind of ginned up and bullied up on it. And as Genevieve rightly said, we've had decade plus of free money, of quantitative easing. And so none of us have a playbook for what a world looks like for Bitcoin and other digital assets and quantitative tightening, which is what we're enduring right now. We're having a, a period of quantitative tightening. And so no one has a playbook for that right now. Um, yeah. And so that is something that we're all trying to do on, on the cuff, you know, right now. Right. And I, we'll get to macro in a second, but I want David's thoughts. Also, I was not aware of the 92% finance number. Maybe you can give that some color since obviously you're the head of research at Coinbase. Man, uh, there's a lot of negativity to the question of what do we find optimistic for this year. I'm going to say that the sentiment kind of put out by Genevieve is pretty, pretty emblematic of what the major obstacles are to performance at the moment. You know, I would say that we're looking at the, an asset class that historically is able to 6x from where we are, probably six or seven, seven times greater. If there are no further consolidation events, if we're not worried about DCG, if we're not worried about Binance, we're not worried about any of these other things, I would say that relative to what we're seeing in traditional finance, probably there will be, you know, let's say a recession in 2023, a global recession. It's going to be broken up by regions, whatever. But that's what, another 20% down on the stock market? Like if crypto paralleled that and we saw another 20% down, relative to the gains that you can actually make, like that is something that I think most market players could tolerate. What they can't tolerate is another consolidation event. They can't tolerate a 50% drawdown from here. I think that I think is what is preventing people from really kind of getting back into this market. But I would say I'm fairly optimistic, maybe cautiously optimistic, that probably what we're getting right now is maybe like the last wave lower. You know, I think that, yes, we are still trapped inside this consolidation pattern, but you know, just like the majors, for example, Bitcoin, ETH, a lot of those uh, major cryptocurrencies that represent the market cap of uh, this, this asset class, you know, they have a lot of room to play catch up here because of all of the deleveraging we've gotten in 2022. So I think there's a lot of upside. We're just kind of waiting to see this kind of, you know, last phase correct itself before we can kind of jump back in here. And I think a lot of traditional institutional players also see that because they recognize that these markets are cyclical and that 
we're going through this down period. It happens to the best of us. If you look at it from a sharp ratio perspective, actually crypto pretty much traded in line with many other asset classes. We actually outperformed bonds, but that's no surprise in a in a year where you were hiking rates. But you know, like I think this is just just par for the course in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think okay to your point on institutions. I think um, you deal with a specific subset of institutions, right? Like these are institutions that are willing to buy risky assets. The types of institutions that I talk to, the types of conversations they're having right now are like, yeah, what's my equity to bond rating? Like I'm in large caps. I don't even want to own mid caps. I don't even want to own small caps. I don't even want to own micro caps. I don't even want to own privates. Crypto, no way, right? So I think until you see, to your point, we've seen, you know, we're going to have all of these layoffs with these tech companies that hasn't siphoned through the system yet. That hasn't hit earnings yet. We haven't had an earnings recession on the S&P 500 yet. That's all going to happen probably sometime over the next six to 12 months. Data is going to get a lot worse. Sentiment is going to get worse. Um, at that point, my opinion personally is that the stock market will probably bottom because it tends to bottom when things are, you know, kind of look uh, the worst and then starts to rebound because we're always forward looking in terms of investing. Um, but like crypto is definitely not at the top of the list for most of the people that I talk to in terms of interest level. We're just, it's just not there yet. And I would love to talk about, you know, this whole Genesis Gemini thing that's going on, because I think it brings up a really important question. And, and David, because you're in, in the corporate world at uh, Coinbase, like how, why is it that something like this is being aired on Twitter? Why is there a corporate fight going on in front of the entire world? Like, shouldn't the crypto community be coming together to help each other behind the scenes? Like it just, it just speaks to sort of, it feels very traditional finance, like to some degree. I thought we were supposed to all be helping each other and that's not what's happening. So I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on that. David from Coinbase. <laughs> thanks for thanks for identifying us. Well, first of all, I agree. Like in the traditional finance world, this wouldn't really play out like this, right? It wouldn't be playing out publicly on a public forum like Twitter. I think that this, to be fair, is kind of what happens in the crypto space. You know, the, the this oftentimes kind of get gets hit. But it's hard to kind of speak to the individual interests at play here. I think the Winklevoss twins, for example, have uh, a duty that people are asking them to respond to uh, the, you know, the, the issues regarding this $900 million, for example. And, you know, in a lot of ways, they find that themselves pressured to kind of say like, well, we need to find where the, the, where the, the points are, breaking points are here. And that for us is Genesis. Um, now, I'm not saying that this lets Genesis off the hook. I'm just saying that there are specific interests at play here and they are, you know, trying to, to combat this on the best way they can. Maybe this is how they, 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 they're thinking about doing it. Um, I can't really justify those actions one way or another. But I do think that we are, are still going to need more time to see Genesis kind of play out. And ultimately, I don't believe that this is going to be a major, like, domino that's going to fall that's going to take out like the the rest of the crypto asset class like i don't think that genesis is going to impact dcg and therefore grayscale for example lean to a redemption event on bitcoin like i i be genuinely believe that we are likely to avoid that and if that's going to be the case i actually find that reassuring for the asset class i mean to your point, i think yeah, like sorry. it's actually it's actually quite impressive how resilient 
in a sense, crypto has been given, there's like nowhere really that people feel they can trust apart from maybe Coinbase because it's a federally regulated public company audited, you know, by the big four. But like, I don't know. I don't like, I don't feel safe with Binance. Like Binance really freaks me out. Um, it's like they have a gun to their head and at any day, the Department of Justice just come out and be like, you know what? We want to take some heat off this FTX situation because this is exposing not only, uh, you know, us, the SEC, uh, you know, the Biden administration, all the Democrats that got, you know, free money handed to them who aren't giving it back. And it's like, that could happen at any moment. Then what? Then what happens? Because for people to get into DeFi, they have to learn how to self-custody. So how are you going to teach, you know, 300 million people how to do that? Like, how's that going to happen? It's the same we've way that we've had. Wait, 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 Scott, 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 wait. Right, please. It's the same yeah. way that we've taught millions and millions and billions of people about 2FA. It, it's really, it's not that difficult. You know, I'm, I'm getting, and, and Genevieve, it's, it's not you, it's, it's, I'm getting tired of this conversation because this is something that I've talked to our investors about. We, we ran away from the innovation, the technology for the last two years. We said, oh, you, Goldman Sachs, oh, Mr. Multi-Billion Dollar Endowment Pension Fund. Oh, you like crypto. Okay, we'll use the centralized exchange, obviously void of, of Coinbase because you're a regulated entity and you're obviously publicly traded and you have fiduciary you know, duties, and, but others out there. Oh, use that. Um, and, and instead, you know, focusing on, oh, you actually have the ability to protect your assets, unlike we did back in Lehman and MF Global. You know, we, we came, many of us came from that world back in 2008 and 2009, where we saw the malfeasance, where we saw what happened when you were able to hide massive amounts of leverage. And so we came from that world and we said, no, this is, there is technology to actually make that better. There's technology to make it immutable and to make it fully transparent. So what is exactly, what are you exactly upset about? The fact that it does take people, it's a learning curve and it takes a while for people to learn how we've to do that? We've made excuses for it. Who's we've said, making oh, excuses? We, it, we, it, as an industry, we've said, oh, it's weird. Oh, you know, getting a treasure or a ledger is kind of weird. It is oh, though, it's a, difficult. I can tell you like the average person doesn't want to do that, right? I so, will tell you that there are millions and billions of people out there that use dongles. If they're working for a corporation, they're working especially siloed outside of the, of the corporation. If they're working from home, they're using a dongle basically to get them an encrypted code. Okay, so, so then in. a better question is then how to ease that process for them, how to make them comfortable with exactly. it. Exactly. And this is that something is that we have missed as an industry for the last two but, years. But you can't that argue that it's, it to. is happening, that people aren't willing to do it and aren't wanting to do it. And that's a big impediment to having, you know, this other decentralized finance ecosystem really flourish, right? Like that's a big hurdle that needs to overcome. And maybe the leaders in the industry need to be the ones to step up and like put on some massive seminars, bring out 5,000 people, give them free treasure wallets, I agree. you know, teach them in real time how the Apple store does it and teaches grandparents yeah. how to like turn their iPhone on and look at, yeah, you know, absolutely right. And I think what Ledger did with getting Tony Fidel also to design their new stacks that's coming out uh, this year in the next month or so, it's beautifully designed. It looks like an iPod. That's awesome. Um, that's this great. is exactly the types of things that we but, need as an industry to actually reinforce that. Right. So that's what we need instead of instead of, you know, the Winklevi, you know, twins fighting on Twitter over where their customers money is like that's where we're at right now. It's like, where is the customer fund? Embarrassing. <laughs> it's embarrassing. Those are like I've I've kind of always laughed that we need guys in suits and adults in the room, which is a very unpopular opinion in crypto. But I thought that maybe they were it. But we've seen over and over again now you know, youngish billionaires airing their dirty laundry on Twitter. I mean, SBF, the three arrows capital guys, I mean, they can't shut up for five seconds, even at their own peril and their own, 
you know, legal risk. They literally can't. I mean, every single time something happens, Suzu comes out and blames that person for everything that happened at Three Arrows Capital. So all the stuff that SBF's been tweeting about the last, you know, whatever, six weeks since the collapse, um, and everyone's like, how shocked, like, how is this guy still tweeting? Like, he's incriminating himself, like, all, you know what I mean? My prediction is he's probably going to get something like 10, 10 years. He's probably going to negotiate a plea deal, get like 10 years, serve like two or three years. And then everyone's going to go, what about all these incriminating tweets he did? So I guess you can just tweet things out and like, there's no consequences to it. Like, I, I think that that's how crazy this has gotten. Um, Cause I just like, I don't, I, I was don't still surprised. I was still surprised that the guy even got arrested. So I, I guess I'll, <laughs> I'll take that. Right. I, I really thought that he was going to be surfing with those other dudes or, painting or whatever they're all they're all doing like a face transplant in venezuela right but this does all speak and i think jambi have you been hammering this point to the optics of the industry right now right because listen we've had massive bull runs huge rips in the market before to the upside without mainstream adoption without mainstream adoption of custody without institutions and these huge businesses joining it's not like price can't go up unless we convince all these people right but let me ask you a question when that happened wasn't the hope always oh one day institutions will come in so that wave of capital get in front of it but now it's come and some of it's gone and now we have to rebuild trust and i think it's going to happen don't get me wrong i am a blockchain bull i believe in this technology long term i don't know where the utility lands exactly like where that's going to be, you know, what's going to be the shining armor that's going to come in. It's going to be kind of a real use case beyond just the, you know, value exchange uh, that's happening. Um, NFTs, I like that, not the art part, but I think for authenticating, you know, real assets, I think it has a real value. Um, But yeah, I'm just wondering about that because, you know, institutions have come, many have gone um, traditional if institutions. I, right? if, I, I don't if, I, if I can speak about that from a venture perspective too, and I think I have to give credit to Nick Grossman from USV. He wrote something a few years ago that was quite brilliant that stayed with me. And it's a, a chart that he's done where he shows early technology from the internet and it shows applications and it shows infrastructure. So it shows applications that got people really excited, um, that got hundreds of millions of people really excited. And we've seen that. We've seen that with GameFi. We've seen that with Axie, for instance, where they went from a few hundred thousand daily active users to three million daily active users at the end of 21. We have seen explosive daily active user growth in certain areas of digital assets. And so what we've seen is that when you have that massive explosion of, of interest in an app or a game, for instance, then you start to say, well, wait a second, the infrastructure is actually not meeting the, the needs or the demands of a new user group. And so you go through a period of, con- of contraction because, again, you need to go back to the wheelhouse and build new infrastructure to support that. And so we've seen this over periods of time. It's a cycle, um, a few year cycle that happens within technology over the last 40 some odd years, especially with the advent of the Internet, that there are periods of time where you see this massive growth of an interest in an app. And then all of a sudden you really see that you need to have better infrastructure to support that. And so I think that's where we're at right now. So we've seen significant interest. We've seen DeFi reach hundreds of billions of dollars of total value locked. We've seen GameFi actually get, you know, thousands and thousands of people within there playing those games. Um, but we've seen that the infrastructure is not there to support some of the growth and some of the, the issues that are present there. How do we feel about custodial infrastructure? 
like there's, there's now like an argument being made that you know custodians and exchanges should be completely separate entities shouldn't have the same management shouldn't have the same owners shouldn't have the same executives like that's just basic crypto infrastructure how, how do we feel about that promise david might be also good to chime in there <laughs> as much as he can <laughs> Oh. Yeah, I might either be the best or the worst person to actually talk about that. <laughs> uh, well, let's say this. I mean, crypto, the way it was designed, kind of forced exchanges to take on custody in a lot of ways, right? Like, I think that, yes, in traditional finance, we've had enough years that where we've been able to separate a lot of these, uh, these elements. So custody, settlement, like, uh, you know, the tra trade execution, all these things have been compartmentalized in a lot of ways, separated among different entities. And we've recognized that, you know, that was necessary in order to actually have uh, no commingling of interest, let's say. But I think that the challenge on the crypto side is that, you know, there was a lack of ability, a lack of, you know, probably, you know, uh, actual execution in terms of being able to separate those two things. And so custody became a large element of actually exchanges. You know, I can't say for sure how that's going to materialize in the future, but I think for the time being, uh, that's not something that we can actually separate for this asset class. Well, we are seeing now that Bank of New York, Mellon and State Street, I mean, we're talking about custody. There's definitely been movement for major custodians, but I guess this becomes one of those things where it's a battle between the ethos of the asset class in the very first place, self-custody and things like that, and going to literally the biggest custodians in the world. Javier, I know you have to leave in like two minutes, so maybe your final thoughts there. Yeah, I think it needs to happen. I think it just it makes the most sense. I think it would inject a lot of trust in the system. Um, I think that, again, traditional finance has been doing it for, you know, uh, decades, if not, you know, over 100 years. So I just think that, to your point, David from Coinbase, it just wasn't, there wasn't like a motivation for somebody to just launch, hey, we're just a new custody for crypto. And I don't think the insurance uh, was properly in place at those times when these sort of companies were first formed. So it only made sense to sort of hold it all together. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what type of regulation comes out of, you know, this whole FTX case and the SEC. I mean, one piece of information that I picked up on from the bankruptcy proceedings. Uh, John Ray said that FTX US, which uh, was supposed to be solvent, this is what Sam Bankman-Fried had been saying this whole time, was in fact not completely solvent. This is what he's come out and now said. And so that's a responsibility under the SEC to have known this. And so potentially the custody issue is going to be one of the learnings. Hey, we need to separate these things out. So um yeah, those are my thoughts. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure speaking with you all today. Um, and I'm sure we'll Thank you. I'm sorry you have to you leave. Again. You're welcome back it's anytime. Okay. And everybody go follow her and definitely check out her newsletter. Grit. I was literally just reading it as we uh, got got on here here today. It's really incredible. So Still I, a bull. I really I've got it. my $100,000 Bitcoin cup here that I'll be holding until this happens. So There you go. Let's get there. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Bye. So now that, so that, that brings not here, up I, I do want to just say go one ahead. more thing on the, the Coinbase thing as well. I mean, like... There is a reason why we, for example, launched a Web3 wallet that allows people to do self-custody if they need to. But also just keep in mind that unlike, well, you know, I'm just going to say what we do. Like when we definitely have a hot wallet and a cold storage wallet, a cold storage wallet that has never touched the Internet, for example, so that, you know, anyone who actually, you know, uh, buys securities 
when we custody that that's untouched that hot wallet is also insured so that you know really distinguishes us uh as an exchange yeah and i, and I think that options are important right and and, that, and i think that you made an important point that i really hadn't thought about which is that if you wanted to get dollars in and out of crypto in the early days how could an exchange like coinbase not be your custodian there was really no other option people are saying well why didn't i, I see it in the comments well, people could have self-custodied. Well, then they can't go, couldn't go from self-custody to dollars, you know, in the early days of crypto. So I think it just evolved in that manner. She made a very interesting point, I think. She made a lot of very interesting points. And I think I should say that at our, at our own sort of risk, we should not listen to people who are one foot in TradeFi and one foot in this industry who maybe are seeing it from outside the echo chamber. So I value her position there. FTX.us obviously was a problem. And now Binance.us, the SEC now is actually coming out and saying they have a problem potentially with the Voyager deal. So is this like a, is this now the SEC saying, oh crap, we totally missed the mark on FTX. Now we need to start scrutinizing anything because they weren't scrutinizing that deal, certainly. I definitely feel like that's the conspiracy theory right now that, you know, People claim that they were too close to FTX and therefore this is them overcorrecting to some extent. But I think the SEC has had a history of regulation by enforcement. And, <laughs> you know, this continues to be what they're doing rather than actually taking a step back and coming up with thoughtful regulation for this space. I do think it's coming. I do think that we're a place where we're going to start seeing foundational reforms for the asset class. And probably 2023, we'll start seeing that you know, maybe we'll make progress. I think it's probably going to happen more with stable coins, uh, probably in the first instance, before we start migrating to, you know, what we do with centralized entities, for example. Um, can we salvage DCCPA, for example? Uh, I'm not sure how it's all going to look at the end of all things, but I certainly think that we're now much further along. It's unfortunate because I had to take an event like FTX to kind of get us there. But I think that we recognize that if we don't do something, we're unfortunately just pushing people towards other jurisdictions that aren't as well regulated. If I can just say one thing, you don't create a symposium of, you know, supposed professionals that are trying to cure cancer and invite a bunch of people that fix cars for a living. <laughs> and so I think it's time where if there's actual real interest in creating sustainable good regulation that fosters the innovation which we've seen McHenry and others say time and time again I hope that is true because we we do want good sustainable regulation in the space that they really start to invite people that are in this space actively as in, as founders as investors not necessarily just as academics I think that's really important people that actually understand the technology understand the influence of the technology understand traditional markets as well and the, the influence that the technology can have on those markets. I think it's time that we actually have a symposium with those that are creating policy involving those that actually are in day-in-day -day activities in this world. Do you think that they're, I know that our industry is interested in doing that, but do you think that Gary Gensler really cares? Right, I'm not asking you to specifically criticize him, but it doesn't seem like at this point, after SBF went on his roadshow as the representative of the industry, that legislators or regulators are too keen to sit down with 
you know, 50 industry leaders and learn about it. It just doesn't feel that way to me. Maybe I'm being pessimistic. Can't answer that, but I would say, you know, one, one bad apple as you know, as potentially is should not necessitate that the entire basket of fruit is also spoiled. So let's focus more than on 2023 and what we don't not necessarily likely catalyst for an improved market, but what you guys are looking for to see improved in the crypto space outside of prices, outside of regulation, all of these things. Are we still excited about GameFi? Are we still excited about the metaverse? Are we still excited about NFTs? What are you guys looking at that you think could be truly groundbreaking in 2023? I, I talked about that from a venture perspective with DeFi and security, thinking that that actually the marriage there could be something that creates sustainability and further growth. Another area that we think is really interesting for 2023 and beyond is the marriage of what we call Web 2 to Web 3. Um, we see uh, Nike with their acquisition of Artifact. That's already been material uh, in terms of their profits. It's been about $185 million in 2022, which is representative of multi-billion dollars of revenue for Nike, de minimis and small. Um, but $185 million nonetheless is, is something significant in terms of revenue. Um, we obviously saw Starbucks launch Odyssey in December. Um, and we think that that's very interesting. We're tracking that vis-a-vis one of uh, our portfolio companies. Um, and we're seeing that this is very interesting because Starbucks has effectively abstracted away a lot of the complexities with NFTs and some of the infrastructure. They don't necessarily call the stamps. Uh, they call them stamps. Um, that you actually can get when you go through the Starbucks Odyssey platform. Um, they're not called NFTs. They're called stamps. That's interesting. Um, again, you know, I, I, I made the joke yesterday with some of my teammates. You don't go to Amazon.com and say, oh, I went to my DNS. You know, it's a domain name server. It's Amazon.com. It's, it's not, you know, it's not, you know, the seven, eight, nine digits that you would normally have to put into to get into Amazon.com if you were using uh, traditional methods. You don't say a DNS, you know, address, you just say amazon.com. And so we think that that's, you know, possibly what's going to happen now is that you might not necessarily just call these NFTs. You might call them something else. You might call them stamps. You might call them a number of different, uh, uh, types of linguistical possibilities here. So we think that this idea of web two to web three is very interesting. We think that large brands are trying to find ways to better their relationship to their customers and to their consumers. We also see that some of the regulation that's actually coming through in the next few months here with regards to cookies, uh, there's a massive clampdown on cookies, uh, especially in Europe, uh, that's going to be coming down over the course of the next few months, where they're really trying to enforce that, you know, the cookie collection is becoming uh, something of the past. And so how do large brands get a better social graph of their consumers? We think that's possibly the use of NFTs. And so we're exploring that as a, as, a, as a way forward, is that all of these large brands are trying really to create innovative new ways with a new demographic. You know, going back to you know, the comment about GameFi, there's 3 billion gamers around the world. They live in different types of ways. That's why Mr. Beast is now in Fortnite, because he understands that this is a great way to get more of a market share of subscribers. Um, these are all things that happen in real time. And we think that the NFT actually, as Genevieve alluded to, goes beyond the, the collectible to something new that is much more consumer facing. That's another one of our, our trends for 2023. I like that. I like that. I, I do believe that decentralized identity is going to be a major part of this as a class. I think it's a big unlock in terms of what it can actually offer. Uh, so I would definitely put that on the top. 
I would add probably four other things as well. And just on a very granular level, I do think that liquid staking is going to be a very major part of 2023. We're already starting to see it, you know, like uh, how well Lido has been doing, uh, the demand that we're seeing for liquid stake derivatives, for example. And a big part of that, of course, has to do with the fact that if the Ethereum withdrawal, excuse me, withdrawals from uh, state ETH on, on Ethereum is going to be allowed probably in Q1. I mean, they say it's March, you know, that's much earlier than uh, a lot of people were expecting previously. So I think that's a big deal. Uh, I would say that layer twos are also going to be a really big kind of topic that we're going to see. The user experience we've known for a while had to be improved. I think we're starting to see that. Plus, I think uh, we're probably going to see that scaling solutions are going to be enabled by the upgrade path for Ethereum itself. But that doesn't discount all the other L1s, which is topic number three. I would say the race for the L1s. Uh, and, you know, I'm not saying that it has to be a winner-take-all market, but certainly we have seen a shift from the FAT protocol thesis to the FAT application layer thesis. And, you know, that's been happening probably over the course of 2022. You know, I think that that is very meaningful. So a lot of the technologies that are coming out in terms of integrating the move programming language into an L1 and say like, you know, a, a SUI launch or something like that, it's going to be closely watched. So I'm going to be paying attention to that. And then lastly, tokenization. You know, it's a topic that we've been talking about since probably at least 2017, but it's really kind of come in in a big way uh, over the last year or so. And now I think that there's a lot more institutional participation in this. So I think we're finally ready to see tokenization in some form. Probably it'll be uh, in securities rather than, say, real-world assets in the form of real estate, for example. Uh, but I think that's already a large step. Um, of course, then we'll then need to build the market for that. So it's not, you know, it would still just be the first step rather than seeing it fully formed in 2023. Yeah, I mean, tokenization of securities leads us back to regulation to some degree. Right. So I think that uh, it's definitely going to happen. The question is, will it be able to happen here? <laughs> yeah, but we've been seeing that, for example, JP Morgan, the deal with uh, Project Guardian, for example, and MAS, you know, like that was done, of course, in Singapore. Uh, but that's already proven that it's being used, that people are doing it, or the fact that SockGen was able to basically... Uh, you know, put on chain a bunch of mortgage bonds and use it or, you know, propose that it be used as collateral on Maker. So I think things like that are happening and we're seeing more and more of it happening. Yeah, you talked about all the things happening with Ethereum, of course, the upcoming Shanghai fork, which will allow people potentially, you know, to start unstaking. The merge just happened at the worst possible time in context of the market. And you don't hear people talking about it anymore. But for me, the merge is still the most massively bullish catalyst that we have in the crypto market. And it was always, to me, similar to a having in, in Bitcoin, where people get really excited about it when it happens. But obviously, there's no immediate result. And it takes many months for that sort of supply reduction to play out and all these things. I mean, should we still be talking about the Ethereum merge? Do you guys agree that that's still, just because of the timing of it, it kind of was less hyped than it should be, but that we're going to start to see that really play out in 2023. I would say one of the things that we see, especially as I said, this notion of Web 2 to Web 3, we've we've spoken to brands and we've spoken to projects that are working directly with large brands. 
And the majority of them, as of right now, for the last few months, have opted for Polygon because Polygon has done a very good job um, kind of educating and marketing themselves as something where you can do it sustainably green, low impact, low carbon impact. Um, and that's been a very big thing, especially for Starbucks and other large corporations that have an ESG mandate. And so I think one of the things that was missed in terms of the grander marketing of the merge is that now Ethereum is kind of in the same kind of boat. Uh, it, it's not using proof of work, which you know, obviously, you know, the general consensus outside of crypto believes is dirty and pollutant, et cetera, et cetera. We're not going to get into that diatribe because obviously it's it's been gone for, you know, for years. Um, but, you know, now that Ethereum has moved over to POS and, you know, that also I think could be, you know, again, from a marketing perspective, a, a point of, of retention, they can use that and say, well, listen, we're also the same way that if you're concerned about, you know, carbon em em emissions and you're worried about, obviously, you know, some of the, the work there, this is also now in a, in a more, you know, sustainable green uh, kind of uh, environment as well. So I think, you know, from that perspective, yes, I think the, the merge could also be talked about more. Um, but to Genevieve's point, you know, before, you know, as an industry, and we've been trying this for years, they don't do a very good job marketing and a very good job educating. And so I think we need to go back to that and really try to get some profound marketing uh, for 2023 to really educate people out there about what some of these things can and cannot do. I would say the merge was technologically like a hugely meaningful event. Of course, you know, many people have compared it to changing the engine on a plane mid-flight, but we also need to recognize the humanistic effort that it took to get there. You know, this wasn't a centralized entity directing people to do X, Y, and Z. And that I think is actually why the merge is going to be significant in 2023, because now we have another upgrade path. Like it basically opened the door to all these other things that, that are now going to be possible. You know, like we didn't talk about it, but for example, there's a new concept of restaking, which is possibly going to allow validators to actually have another income stream. Um, and that's going to allow middleware to actually be incorporated into the network in a much more like uh, efficient kind of way. Of course, again, it's we're still experimenting with that. It's going to take time. But I think things like that are, you know, allowed. This is something that couldn't have happened prior to the merge. So I think everything that we're talking about now, everything that Ethereum is going to become, I think had to happen. But that kind of goes to your point that, of course, it, it you know, it, it didn't, nothing happened overnight. Like it was the, it was the entry point to allow all these other things to happen. But also, yeah, it's a poor time to launch because like, you know, I would say this year, the big focus, like, you know, not just on the macro side, but even in crypto, we're going to be talking about recession all year long. We're going to be talking okay. about when are we going to see the recession? When is it going to happen? And so it's going to be hard to insert anything into that news cycle when we're talking about, oh, man, Europe looks like it's having, an, be, uh, it's having a hard time. Like, what's going to happen in the UK? Like, uh, is the US going to actually get a soft landing? Like, these are going to be the yeah. topics that we're going to be talking about. Yeah, Shanghai Fork doesn't really make the uh, mainstream media cycle when you're talking about a global recession. But going back to it, there's been a narrative that people believe that when the Shanghai Fork happens and people can unstake that that would actually be bearish for Ethereum, that people would finally be able to pull their coins out. I believe it's completely the opposite. I mean, people that I speak to and people with sideline capital, I think are waiting to deposit till they know that they will actually be able to eventually withdraw. Right. So I think that it's actually a huge bullish event uh, that this 
is coming and will be yet another catalyst for that ecosystem. Yeah, I think the argument goes that, hey, if you started staking Ethereum, like sub 1000, for example, like, man, you must be chomping at the bit to get out of there. But keep in mind, who did that? When, when people were actually staking at that price point, like you did it with, without the knowledge about how long it would take you to unstake. You did that with like an indefinite kind of time period in your mind. You don't do that because you're looking to capitalize or make a quick buck. You're doing that because you believe in the ecosystem. And so I don't really believe that that's going to be the case. Plus, you know, like you, you not everyone's going to be allowed to unstake all at once. It's going to be staggered the way it's kind of structured. So technologically, it's also not possible. Like I think you're only going to be allowing thir- 1,350 like people a day to actually uh, to, to unstake. So I think that you got to keep that in mind as well. Plus, you know, like as you said, I think in fact it's quite the opposite. Many people who were worried about the liquidity versus yield kind of situation. I think now they're going to have the opportunity because they're like, oh, I don't have to worry about that issue anymore. Like, actually, it's a much more opportune time to stake more than anything else. David. I hear this and I understand and I agree with everything that David is saying. But I also think back one of the things I've been thinking about and one of the things that Genevieve also alluded to just before is the everyday person out there that is not within the space for the last two to three years, or as long as you have been David or you as, you know, Scott doesn't know what the hell you're talking about. Um, And so it's just for me, it's, I'm trying to, you know, you know, I think we're trying to wrap our heads around how we can get to be to, you know, larger adoption curves of, of this. And so while it's great to talk about the Shanghai fork and about, you know, unstaking, what is Ethereum going to be used for going forward in 2023? You know, what are the major, you know, what's going to draw people to actually use Ethereum as a as a network, uh, you know, from a function perspective? Um, and so trying to think through that, you know, how are they going to start getting, you know, massive amounts of daily active users? How are they going to get more, you know, if it's a DeFi protocol on Ethereum, how is it going to generate more total value locked on there? Um, all of those things, you know, how do we get back to that point of time where we focus on the con- on the consumer? And so while I agree with, you know, what you're saying, David, you know, my mind is really, you know, kind of focused on things like what Frederick Wilson wrote, you know, just the other day about this is now becoming more of a durational, you know, five, 10, 15 year type of mentality where you have to have, I believe he said, a very, you know, kind of, you know, tough stomach uh, for it. And so that's really where my head is going is that's what, you know, that's why we've been focusing on some of the themes that we have. Um, while it's good to think about, you know, kind of shorter duration events that are happening over the course of the next few months, I'm trying to think about what's going to actually cause, you know, hundreds of millions of people to start using Ethereum as a service. Any ideas? (laughs) Because I, you know, listen, I I think it goes back to the same question that we've already repeated, which is what will, you know, we've put it, posed it as 2023, but all the things you said about DeFi and NFTs and all those, that's the answer I would imagine. But it does feel like we've taken a major step back in actual usage, right? The utility is theoretically there, but how many people are actually using any of this stuff? Right. And so that, you know, that starts from the developer uh, community. You know, how easy is it to build on these things? What kind of SDKs are there? What type of tooling and compilers are there to make this easy for them to do? Um, Is Solidity something that someone who has more of a JavaScript background, is it something that they can pick up very quickly? Um, so that educational ramp up period is, is important. And then from there, from the developer community, then you start developing tools and applications that people potentially want to use. 
You, you really need to have an understanding of what people's pain points are right now, consumer pain points are right now. And I think we've, for as an, as an industry, we have been building towards a promise, but we haven't necessarily been listening to the consumer as much as we should be. And so we think that one of the things that should be done more is that Web3 companies should really be doing more studies on the potential consumers that they're trying to target. What are your pain points? If you're using you know, a game, for instance, what are, your, what are your pain points with the game? Do you really not like the fact that you don't own the asset and you can't trade the asset if you want to trade the asset? Um, if it's a DeFi platform, do you really want to be able to use that as a productive asset or do you just want to be able to kind of store it away safely and let it just grow and, and appreciate? Um, all of those types of questions are out there. And I think as an industry, we need to do a better job really focusing on understanding those pain points and those questions so we can build meaningful products that people love. Um, and as Jason Kalanaka says, delightful you know, applications. I, I think that's kind of what we need to do. And so we've been looking at companies that actually have been trying to do the, some of those case studies for Web3 companies to see, you know, are you actually building something that over the course of the next six to 12 to 18 months can create, you know, fairly significant amounts of daily active users. And so understanding that from the very core basics, I think is something that we need to have a better playbook for. And so creating that playbook, you know, not only just from the developer community, as I said, having the development tools, being able to, as, as David alluded to, you know, we've been, you know, talking a little bit about, you know, move as a language uh, and how it is something that, you know, could be something meaningful over the course of the next, you know, few years, uh, because it has a lot of the AI kind of components of GBT3 involved with it as well. A lot of people are talking about GBT3. So, you know, from the developer side, you know, can we continue to focus on that? I'm very curious when Electric Capital produces their developer uh, survey, which I think comes out in the next few weeks. Um, very curious to see kind of what the trends have been from the developer community, but continuing to focus on the developer community, building applications and tooling for them so they can really build meaningful uh, tools fast uh, as something that we think is important, but then really understanding, again, the consumer. What does the consumer want? What are some of the issues that the consumer deals with on a daily basis? And how can Web3 applications and infrastructure deal that, uh, solve that problem? I think that there's a lot of merit to what you're saying in terms of trying to form fit what actually the final consumer demand is actually going to be. But you kind of, kind of keep in mind that what got us from the transition from Web1 to Web2? You know, there are a lot of underlying technologies that had to be in place in order to get us from just writing blogs to actually transacting on these things. Like we couldn't have Amazon without SSL, right? Like that yeah. was something that was a, a crucial point yes. before I was willing to put my credit card online and actually buy something on there. Are you, are you reading my, my investor letters? <laughs> so you're reading his investor letters. Uh, I, I, I made that, I made that specific yeah. point a few weeks ago. It's amazing. Yes, I completely right. agree. So I think a lot of ways, that's what we're doing right now. We're laying the groundwork for, you know, trying to build something in Web3, but we still don't know what that is yet. I mean, like we're in a lot of ways focused on rebuilding Web2 and Web3 more than anything else at the moment. And that's not a bad thing. I think it's necessary as a, as a first step. But I think that there is going to be some unlock of the underlying technology. I got to start moving my hands around because this is how I knocked my mic down the first time. Um, <laughs> but I think that, you know, you we need that. <laughs> you need the underlying technology in order to actually uh, build out for what Web3 will become. And I don't know what that is go going to be. For example, like I think a lot of people talk about institutional adoption. I want to see institutional adoption mean institutional usage, because once we get something like a permission DeFi type structure, that they're going to be participating in this, settling trades on this, 
that for me is a real use case that's going to build up activity on a public network like Ethereum. I agree with I, that. I, I love that point that literally yesterday on the stream, we were talking about institutional adoption and sort of came to the conclusion that right now that just means how many people are going to buy and sell these assets with no real concern with them for the future. It really has to be institutional, you know, it's not adoption. I can't even now remember what word I use, but participation, you know, we basically need them to actually use it, not just yeah. buy and sell it. And, and, but what I'm hearing from you guys it's kind of stupid for me to even ask the what's going to happen in 2023 question because all of these things are going to take years and years and years to build out. We're not going to flip our UI UX problem into a benefit in the next six months, right? There's so many things that need to be built and improved for retail to adopt it. I mean, I actually see some comments over here. Someone was saying, Scott, you talk about retail all the time, but no one's talking to retail. Why don't you have a round table of retail on to talk about their understanding. And I think that that's important to the point I was making about John Viev. We actually need to start listening to the people who aren't in the industry. And that's the only way developers are one thing, but if developers aren't talking to people who are suffering those pain points on a daily basis or who even care, right? I mean, yep. then what's the point? They're just developing blind and hoping something sticks. Yep. Yeah, it, so, it, it, it's yeah, like building it's like building blackboards when people are using tablets. It's like, you know, it's why would you do that? Um, and so we you know, we really need to better understand the the pain points, what makes you know someone happier, what makes someone's life better with these applications, you know, and you know, that's why it was very interesting when the whole kind of and I know it obviously became, you know, something that was smirked on, but the whole kind of move to earn, you know, kind of moment that we had last year, you know, in theory, you know, if you extrapolate away kind of what happened with, you know, what happened with that, the idea of being able to potentially incentivize and reward people for doing positive actions like exercise and walking uh, and be able to collect that data and be able to use that potentially with an insurance company to lower their premiums is something that is actually a positive, a, a positive, um, but again, it's being kind of sucked into this whole world of, you know, kind of too fast, to, you know, and now. And so we really need to, I, I think those types of things actually do have merit. Um, but again, to your point, Scott, and what I said before is that we really need to do a better job understanding who outside of our box. And again, for the last few years, we talk about TVL, we talk about yield, we talk about staking. It's all within the same box of, you know, the users that we've had for the last few years. We really need to do a better job of outside of that box. Um, what do you need? What makes your life better? And then can Web3 infrastructure start to build for that? And I think that's when you start to have real stickiness. I 100% agree because you can look back at the sort of internal bubbles in the crypto cycles, you know, DeFi summer and NFT summer and metaverse fall. It's a washing machine. It's the same, you know, call it 50, 100, 200,000 people moving from place to place to make money, but it's not a signal of adoption, right? I don't think there was massive DeFi adoption. It was a bunch of people yield farting, farming, I said yield farting, yield farming yams and tacos, right? And then flipping NFTs. I think we have seen some real adoption there, but that really is the point. How do we get the new people here and not just keep finding new ways for the people that are, you know, crypto native to flip their sort of coins to make money. 
Right. And I think, you know, what we talked about before is that UI UX, UI UX is you could start to see, and again, you know, this has been, this has caught some fire, but something like a biometric where instead of having to necessarily rely on, you know, seed phrases, you know, something like a biometric could be meaningful. You know, as I said, 2FA has been in our lives now for the last few years, 2FA type of technology. We're kind of used to that and accustomed to it. So how do you actually get from that earliest point of time, remove friction? And so one of the things that we've looked at, you know, from the venture perspective is how do you remove some of that friction? You know, for even simple as off-ramping, off-ramping, you know, digital assets has typically been about a 10-step process. And we found teams that have been able to remove that to about a two-step process. That's much more in line with what we do on a day-in-day basis. So removing the friction points, making it more in line with what we do on a day-in-day basis, using you know, our face scans or whatever it may be, so we don't have to necessarily be kind of rudimentarily stuck within the complexities of the, te- of the technology, rather abstract away the complexities of the technology, still have it in the background, but make it something that's much more consumer-facing. David, you get the final thoughts. We got we got one or two minutes left. No, I have almost like no notes. <laughs> but yeah, I, I would say that there's a lot of like great points that I think David made. You know, like I agree. I I think we often forget that the user experience in here really accommodates people who are already crypto native or people who are already involved in the ecosystem. So, you know, like it. I mean, it's not to say that it doesn't mean anything, but to say that like, oh, I'm moving my assets from an L1 to an L2. Like, well, it's easy for you to say, but the average person really can't do that very easily. Not not yet. I don't even know what it means. (laughs) Right. So I think uh, we still need to get that changed. And just the on-ramping, off-ramping, I think is also an important part to that as well. Um, I do think we'll get there. And I think that we've been making progress towards that this entire time. You know, like I, I think that it's been happening. We recognize as an industry that it's required in order to, you know, get the next 1 billion users on here. Um, but, you know, I, I think that probably just for the time being, we're still kind of looking our wounds from 2022. We're going to be dealing with repercussions of that first before I think, um, you know, in the, in the background, people are going to build, people are going to develop. I think that's what's going to be great. Um, but really to kind of change the mentality, we just kind of got to get through like the next couple months. Well, if we're looking to onboard the next billion people right now, I would take the next 150 people. <laughs> I'll take anyone, guys. Come on in. And, and apparently next summer is going to be the uh, summer of yield farting for anybody who uh, missed this conversation. That's the summer we went from yield farming to my Freudian slip of yield farting. Thank you, uh, Double Davids. Actually, that, that's uh, David Young. That's your uh, Twitter name, right? DD, that's three Ds, something like that. It's, it's great. Uh, guys, follow both of them. Of course, Jean Viev, who was here earlier. And I can't wait to have both of you back. I think perhaps next time we'll do Crypto Outlook for the next 10 years as opposed to for 2023, because it'll probably be more accurate and we can make much more reliable predictions on on how this space will grow guys thank you so much everyone else i will be back of course tomorrow morning at 9 30 a.m eastern time so until then i will see you all thank you davids be good everyone let's go